And then in chapter 24, he talks about condemning all the world, condemning all the earth. Anybody I left out, anybody that got missed, I mean, if I'm going to list all the nations, we could be here for a long time. So now I'm just going to kind of left you. I've got special words for you people, but I'm just going to kind of lump all of you in together in this sense. And this is where he comes back to where he started in the very beginning. In Isaiah chapter 1 and 2, he made a contrast between the ruined city of Jerusalem, the evil, idolatrous, social injustice Jerusalem, and all the nations that join them in that would be destroyed in the fire. But then the faithful city that would be the new Jerusalem that he would protect and take care of them. He begins to develop that contrast in chapter 24. In chapter 24, verse 21, we come back and we're going to start reading and focusing in. And so he's condemned all these nations. And he's referred to Jerusalem and all the nations as the ruined city. He's going to destroy with fire. And once again, after he gets done judging people and condemning them for a while, he always returns to that hope, that restoration, that promise. So chapter 24, verse 21. At that time, Yahweh will punish the heavenly forces in the heavens and the earthly kings on the earth. Now, this is powerful because right now, everything we've been reading is the destruction of human empires and armies. And now, now we can say we're talking about a spiritual force because he specifically tells you that now. He doesn't leave you to wonder or guess because he's not. Now he specifically tells you that. So by referring to the heavenly forces, he's saying the sons of God. Now remember, he's not, no Jewish person is reading this and thinking demons, although they are demons. But remember, in their vocabulary, they're not thinking of demonic beings. They're not thinking something out of like Dante's Inferno or movies or that kind of stuff. They're thinking the sons of gods. So the divine council of Yahweh. And we talked about this in the Divine Council um, series. But basically that God, what we would call angels, God has all these gods, these Elohim. And Elohim just means the spiritual beings, supernatural spiritual beings with power. And he has created them along with creation, and he gave them the right to rule over the nations. This is clear in many passages. In Psalm 82, 89, Isaiah has different passages Deuteronomy 33 talks about this. And he put them over the nations. But then they rebelled against God. And this is probably the closest thing we have to a fall of demons. It doesn't mention Satan specifically. It doesn't refer to them going bad and falling and demons and all that kind of stuff. Just that they decided to do their own thing. And so God judges them and condemns them. And he says, you're, you're no longer a part of me. You're no longer a part of my divine counsel you're ruling over the nations in an evil, wicked way. We're going to see this when we get to Daniel 10. In Daniel 10, God and the angels referred to them as the princes. It's another word for these sons of God, the princes that rule over Greece, the prince that rules over Persia. And if you don't, we'll, we'll unpack. We talked about that a little bit in the Divine Council study, but we'll talk about that in a lot more depth when we get to Daniel after this series. He condemns them. So what he's saying now is, you have ruled unjustly over all the earthly nations for a long time, just like the human kings keep rising and falling unjustly over the ruins. So 
The day will come when I won't just punish the kings of the earth, I'll punish you sons of God. Now, in today's vocabulary, we would know them as demons. And that's a right and just word to give to them. But know that that's a Second Testament word assigned to them, not a First Testament. Just know in hindsight, no Jew would understand this concept of demon. They would know the word demon, um, and they would, they would think of it kind of that way because it's briefly mentioned in Deuteronomy, but not in the way that we think of it. Not, for them, a demon is a demiurge. The word demion comes from the Greek word that just means a god that rebelled. And that's where we get our word demon. The word demon is like a demiurge. A demiurge is a lesser god and that they've rebelled against their higher god. Yes. I don't know if this is answerable. So when I think of like the divine council, I think of sort of a discrete number of divine beings. And then when like Jesus is casting demons out of individual people, are those, are those still the same level of, or the same type of thing that was once on the divine council? Yeah, because all throughout the First Testament, they're just called the sons of God. And then Deuteronomy briefly connects the son of God's demons by saying when you're worshiping the gods, you're worshiping the demons. When you're sacrificing to the gods, you're sacrificing the demons. But they would understand that as rebellious gods. What God is saying is you're not worshiping gods that are connected to me anymore and a part of my divine counsel. You're worshiping gods that have rebelled, gods that are doing their own thing. Like the equivalent today is rogue agents. So yeah, one time they were part of the CIA. They were part of the FBI, but now they've gone rogue and they're on their own. And they are sometimes convincing people that they're still with Yahweh and they're still doing his missions. The word, when we use the word angel, angel is not actually the name of those beings. Angel is a task that they're given. They're, they're used as a messenger for that moment. The word angel just means I took one of these beings and signed him to be a messenger for this particular purpose. But they would not have been understood as demons in our sense or angels. They'd be understood as gods. And they were all part of the divine council. They've rebelled, they've gone rogue, and they're trying to lead God's creation astray. By the time we get to the Second Testament, because all we know as humans is that the, most of the time when we encountered these beings... They were messengers. They were angels. And so that word started being used a lot to describe, well, aren't all sons of God angels? Aren't they all messengers? By the time we get to the Second Testament, the Jews are calling every son of God an angel. An angel. And even Jesus picks up on this lingo and starts calling them all angels. And so angel now goes from just a specific task that they were given and starts becoming their official name mostly due to an evolution of language rather than a technical classification. And then, of course, they're all starting to be referred to demons because in the ancient world, the gods, the demiurges, the demons, were just kind of gods that rebelled against a more powerful god. And they could be kind of good or they could kind of be bad. But by the time we get to the Second Testament, everybody at this point fully appreciates all the gods are really jacked up and evil. And, and the stories that the Greeks have of their demiurges and gods rebelling, they're jacked up evil gods. And so it's like, you don't kind of know what the gods were in the First Testament. They could be good, they could be bad, da 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 But by the time you get to the Second Testament, the Greeks are like, you know, these are evil, evil, evil beings. They start, demon starts becoming more of an evil, demonic. 
And then, of course, Jesus backs it up and says, they are. They are incredible. They're, they're, they're roaming around trying to sift you, and they're leading you astray and that kind of stuff. So, yes, when he's casting these demons out, they're on the divine, they were on the divine council at one time, way back in the day. What position they had, we don't know. Paul then comes in in Ephesians chapter 6 and makes it clear that even among these demons, gods, there's a hierarchy of power and a hierarchy of ability. And that we begin to realize that not all demons are created equal, that some are more powerful than others, some had different tasks than others. And then you begin to realize, whoa, the Greek mythologies were kind of right in some sense. Like, they didn't just pull this out of the middle of nowhere somewhere. Not that we want to build our Satanology and demonology on the Greek mythologies, but all truth, all things originated in truth somewhere. And this is what C.S. Lewis called strange dreams. He believed that somewhere back in the day, Greek mythology is, was accurate and that it's reflective of what did happen at one time. But through the imagination of man and the corruption of sin nature, they've gotten twisted into these weird, fantastical stories. But if you could trace them back, there is some truth to them in some sense. In fact, the sons of God that we see in Genesis 6, when the Greeks come along and translate that into Greek, they use the word Nephilim, which is um, the word we use at the Titans, those beastly, nasty gods that have been prison in Tartarus. And Peter and Jude picks up on that and says, those sons of God from Genesis 6, they're in the abyss, which is another word for Tartarus. And he's like almost making the connection like either I'm using something that you understand from your culture or I'm saying those titans were real and they really have been in prison. So it's hard to know. But he makes it clear, I'm punishing them all. This is the first hint that we have of a spiritual smackdown and a bringing of the end. And of course, Revelation is going to pick up on this and just... There, it's, in fact, when you get to Revelation, it'll be sometimes hard to distinguish between the earthly and the heavenly as things happen. Verse 22, they will be imprisoned in a pit, locked up in a prison, and after staying there for a long time, they will be punished. He's talking about this could be the lake of fire. This could be the abyss. Who knows? The full moon will be covered up and the bright sun will be darkened, for Yahweh commands armies will rule. On Mount Zion and Jerusalem, in the presence of the assembly, and in majestic splendor. Now, don't interpret this as the sun literally going out and the moon literally going out. That could happen, but we'll shelve that completely for a revelation discussion. But most likely, because of the way that this is used all through, I mean, God already said this of Babylon being taken down. And we all know that the sun and the moon didn't go out when the Persians destroyed Babylon. But what could possibly be is that God is going to, there's going to be eclipses that are going to coincide with this kind of stuff. Like, there will be cosmic things that will be happening, that will cue you in that something's going on. Chapter 25, verse 1. O Yahweh, you are my God. I will exalt you and praise you. I will extol, extol your fame. For you have done extraordinary things and executed plans made long ago, exactly as you decreed. Indeed, you have made this city into a heap of rubble, the fortified town into a heap of ruins. The fortress and foreigners is no longer a city. It will never be rebuilt. So a strong nation will extol you. Yet towns of powerful nations will fear you. 
and you are the protector of the poor, a protector for the needy in their distress, a shelter from the rainstorm, a shade from the heat. Though the breath of tyrants is like the winter rainstorm, like the heat of a dry land, you humble the boasting foreigners just as the shadow of a cloud causes the heat to subside. So he causes the song of tyrants to cease. Yahweh who commands armies will hold a banquet for the nations on his mountain. This is important. Remember, we keep seeing this harsh language, harsh language of judgment, judgment, judgment. But notice, mixed in with that harsh language is, you're a protector of the poor. You're a deliverer of the oppressor. As an American who lives very comfortably in a very free society, it's easy to say, wow, God, that's kind of jacked up and harsh what you're doing to them as punishment. But as the poor who have been oppressed and slaughtered and massacred by armies and, and corrupt governments, and their families are buried in unmarked mass burial graves, they've been waiting for this day. And they've been asking, why God? Why God? Why God? And God says, here I am. And I'm going to smash them. And you always have to understand, like, perspective is everything. And and unfortunately, as Americans, we have a very limited world and historical perspective on some of this kind of stuff. And that's us included. And I'm so thankful that I live in a country where I and my daughters cannot relate to this. So don't get me wrong. I don't want to be able to relate to this. But at the same time, as a result of being a minority in the grand scheme of world history and world events... It's very arrogant, narrow-minded, and ignorant of me to say, that's how could you, God? How could you, God? When I haven't been and experienced what most people have experienced throughout human history. So verse 6, Yahweh who commands armies will hold a banquet for all the nations on his mountain. At this banquet there will be plenty of meat and aged wine. Now remember, most people in the ancient world only got to eat meat maybe two or three times a year at festivals. And anybody who ate meat more than that were the extremely wealthy, and they were probably wealthy due to oppression of other people. And so God's like, but when that day comes, my mountain will flow with meat and wine, and everybody will get it. Tender me in the choicest wine. On the mountain he will swallow up the shroud that is over all the people, woven covering that is all over the nation. He's talking about a banquet. And even today, banquets and dinners are like the most awesome things. Okay, business meetings are still done at dinner time. Dates are dinner time. Festivals, holidays, like we just, we do a lot of things over meals. There's just something about meals that just like really like satisfy us and bring connection and community. And so this is what he's describing. He describes the Cosmic Mountain as a huge banquet. Now remember, this is another thing we cannot relate to. We live in a country where we don't have scarcity. We don't have scarcity of food. I mean, back in the pre-industrial revolution, yes, some of our grandparents could relate to that and kind of connect to that, but not us today. But most of the world has scarcity. Most of the world history has had scarcity. And God is basically saying, like, there's going to be a Kroger and a giant eagle everywhere. Okay, like this is going to be big and huge and you're going to all be able to afford like Whole Foods and Trader Joe's. Okay, like everybody can afford that. 
This is what he's talking about. And this is why so many parables of Jesus are about a banquet. A king throwing a banquet. Because he's rooting into the prophets and he's connecting to a cultural custom. He will swallow up death permanently. This is the first hint of what we have connected to Revelation. Of death and Hades being thrown into the lake of fire. Now what's interesting here is death and the Canaanite Babylonian mythology is the god Moat. And Moat eats everything. And the mythology, Moat describes himself as eating clay all day long. And he can't get enough clay. And no matter how much clay he eats, he's never hungry, or he's never full, he's never satisfied, and he just wants more clay. Now what is clay? It's humans. From the dirt and the dust and the clay that we came from. And death is constantly swallowing and eating and consuming and destroying. And even in Kadesh Barnea of Numbers, God uses that imagery of the ground opening it up and a mouth like swallowing the people of Korah and taking them down into the underworld. That's the idea of the grave swallowing and eating. And now God says, this is the ultimate turning of tables. One day death will be swallowed up. The one thing that you cannot stop, the one thing that always eats and is never satisfied, that will be swallowed and eaten in itself one day. And that is a huge picture and imagery for the people in the ancient world of what God's going to do one day. One day. Moat will be dealt with. The sovereign Yahweh will wipe away the tears of every face and remove his people in disgrace from all the earth. Indeed, Yahweh will announce, has announced it. Sound like Revelation? One of the things, when, when we get to Revelation, and we will if you hang around long enough, one of the things I'm going to tell you in Revelation is, one, Revelation is assuming you've already read all the books of the Bible, especially the First Testament. It drives me nuts when people are like, I'm doing a study on Revelation. I'm like, oh, have you done the prophets? And they're like, no. You can't speak. And and I don't mean that in a mean way, but like the prophets literally are 100% the key for unlocking the book of Revelation. Now, don't get me wrong. Even with the key, the book of Revelation is difficult and confusing. But it becomes way less complicated. And many views immediately can get thrown in the trash can after you understand the prophets. When you start reading this language, you realize when you get to Revelation, if you've thoroughly gone through the prophets, you're like, I've heard this all before. I've heard all this before. And all he's doing is compacting it all together. You don't have to go through and skip and skip and skip, kind of like what we're doing, trying to piece it together. It's all there. Maybe when we get to Revelation, I'll give you a little cliff notes on the prophets to help like, um, remind you and refresh you. Verse 9, at that time they will say, look, here is our God. We waited for him and he delivered us. Here is Yahweh. We waited for him and he's rejoiced and celebrate his deliverance. For Yahweh's power will make this mountain secure. Moab will be trampled down where it stands. A heap of straw is trampled down in the manure pile. Moab will spread out its hands in the middle of it, just as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. And Yahweh will bring down Moab's pride as it spreads its hands in the fortified city along with the very tops of your walls. He will knock down, and he will not bring it down, and he will throw it down in the dusty ground. He's condemning them. But notice this. This kind of goes to that question earlier. 
We waited for God, and it happened. The wait was worth it. The wait was worth it. He did what he said he would do. So he keeps going on and talking about all the different ways that we will celebrate God and this day of the end. And he refers to creation waiting for this deliverance as a woman in pregnancy, which is why Paul uses that illustration. He's rooting back into the prophets. He talks about the people populating the earth all over again who are born. 